the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, um, the easiest way to call us, use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Uh, tonight, here at Calvary Chapel, just FYI, I'll be teaching, hopefully finishing, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2. And then uh, tomorrow, of course, is the date day edition. Paula will be live in studio. And Paula, I know you're listening. You better get ready. Probably there'll be a lot of phone calls tomorrow because it's too cold to do anything else. Everybody will be inside. Isn't it crazy? It can be 78 degrees out there right now. And uh, sometime tonight, it's going to drop into the um, 20s, uh, in wind chill anyway. And uh, I, I, this is craziness. So uh, it's going to be cold. Um, maybe you can get some phone calls. Paul and I will t- try to tough it out and make it here tomorrow. But we will be here with a date day edition of the show. Uh, let me get to questions that have been sent in, and then we'll see what else is on on your heart so just we wait for phone calls our first one is from kevin from our email email inbox he says hi pastor Ron. i pray you are doing well thank you kevin i appreciate the prayers and and i am doing well uh, he says i was studying isaiah 14 from the christian standard bible uh, it says the lord will have compassion on jacob and will choose israel again he will settle settle them on their own land the resident alien will join them and be united in the house of Jacob. Here's the question. Who is considered the alien or stranger? Was Isaiah speaking from past history or future? Thank you for taking my question. Uh, not to be coy here, Kevin, but I think the answer to your question is yes. I think he was talking about all of those things. Now, there's, there's short-term fulfillment here and long-term fulfillment of this prophecy. One of the ways that God had mercy on Israel. When he says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, mercy is in another translation, is that he's going to judge Babylon. Babylon, who devastated Jerusalem, um, they're going to pay. You know, there are times in this world where it appears there's not going to be any justice, but God always keeps score. He always remembers, and Babylon is going to be judged, and that judgment will be complete. Now, when it says that, uh, once again, he will choose Israel and will set them in their own land. Uh, nations will take them and bring them to their own place. 
Um, this prophecy was partially fulfilled after the 70-year captivity in Babylon, but only partially. Uh, when the remnant returned uh, to their homeland, uh, and you'll remember there were several million that were taken into captivity, only 50,000 returned after 70 years, uh, what Isaiah is saying is that their Jewish way of life is going to be restored. Uh, we actually have books in our Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which speak about that partial um, fulfillment. But we know historically there's been another fulfillment of this. In 1948, you know, I love reading commentaries on Isaiah from people who died before 1948. You see, this was a, an impossible promise, or at least it seemed that way, because it didn't seem that it could ever be fulfilled. But God's word never failed. We have to have hope in that. God's word never fails. Um, a lot of the old comedies would allegorize these promises. Um, but the reality is he partially fulfilled that promise in 1948 when Israel was once again, once again, they were allowed back into their homeland after 1900 years away. Now, the rest of this is yet to be fulfilled. Um, we know that the rest of the verse, the house of Israel will possess the nations. Uh, they will take captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. Obviously, that is yet to be fulfilled. So we know this is yet future. You know, when we hear media reports concerning Israel, it's always very one-sided. Israel's always the enemy uh, and the facts are always skewed. But we need to remember this verse calls Israel the Lord's land. It always has been. It always will be. And that tells us everything that we're going to need to know about the Middle East conflict. So when they're going to come back into their homeland, we know that this also points down to the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth. So, Kevin, the aliens are people who are going to come from all over the world. And, and while that's not completely fulfilled yet, it will be completely fulfilled after the Great Tribulation in the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. He will rule from the throne of David forever and ever. And that's exactly what Isaiah is prophesying. One of the hardest things about prophecy is that we... Um, you know, and Isaiah worse than all the other prophets. He'll flip from today when he's talking about and instantly go all the way down to the end of time. Then he'll come backwards and talk about a fulfillment that, that was, was a short-term fulfillment of the prophecy. And prophecy often, especially as it relates to the second coming of Christ, prophecy also has that dual fulfillment of both short-term and long-term fulfillment. And it can be confusing, but you have to just pay attention, Kevin, and you'll get it. So the alien uh, are the people um, in 1948. It was aliens allowed Israel to come back into their homeland. Uh, but later it will be the aliens themselves who come into the homeland because they want to see Jesus. I can't wait for that day. I think it's pretty close. Kevin, thank you for the question. I appreciate you studying your Bible. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is... A question from Henry. This is a question that I didn't want to get too quickly yesterday because I think it's a really good question. Henry says, I'm getting ready to start a business and want to honor God with it. What biblical guidelines should I follow? Henry, do all things as unto the Lord. And remember that God is just, he is righteous. Running a business and not doing it the way other people in the world do it takes great faith in God. You're going to look at competitors who are cutting corners and cheating and, and doing all these things um, to get ahead. They think they've got to do it to survive, you know, when in Rome kind of thing. Um, but but here's what I, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, for you, Henry, because um, I promise you God will honor it. So just be fair. Be just when you can help people do so. That's what God would want you to do. You know, this isn't just about making money, but I believe God will honor that as well. But just run your business with kindness and compassion, with fairness, and be just. Um, whatever you promise people, make sure they get it. Uh, never, ever tell a lie. 
to get ahead. Uh, never get involved. Again, you don't say what kind of business it is, but never get involved with misleading ads. Um, just be upfront with people and treat them the way you want to be treated. And remember, Jesus is going to be there with you. He's given this business to you and he will honor it if, in fact, you honor him in the administration of it. Let me tell you a quick story, Henry. i got nobody waiting on the line, so I'm not offending anybody here. Uh, I was a car dealer. I, I owned a Nissan dealership uh, before I got saved and um, was very successful. And um, then I got saved. And I remember the very first day, the very first day I went into um, uh, a dealership as a Christian. And I called a meeting and told everybody, if anybody lies, if anybody tells a lie, they're fired. We're not going to lie. And everybody thought it was crazy. You can't be a car dealer without lying. Um, I proved that you could. And in fact, before I knew I was called to be a pastor or really what a being a pastor was going to be, Henry, I was begging the Lord to let me go back into business and do it completely the opposite of the way I did it before I got saved. Because I just knew it would be successful. I knew that God would so bless it. And with all of my heart, Henry, today, now this is a long time ago because I've been doing this for now 26 and a half years. But with all of my heart, I have every confidence that God will abundantly bless anybody in business who will do things according to his will, according to his character. So prove it, Henry. I'm so proud. That's wonderful. Honor God with the business. Um, be a blessing to, to people that come in. Um, the best thing that can happen to somebody when they need a service or a product is to run into somebody who loves Jesus Christ. Henry, you be that man. And you just watch and see what God will do. Don't listen to naysayers. Don't listen to people say, you can't do it this way. Be careful about who you hire. Make sure that they're on the same page with you. In fact, personally, I would hire only Christians if it was me. And and, and we would just, our whole business plan would be, let's show the world what Jesus will do with somebody who truly wants to honor him with the business. And then as God blesses, of course, be generous. Be generous. Take care of people. And just feel the smile of the Lord in your life. Henry, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Good for you. Here's a question from Jackson. Jackson, haven't heard from you for a while. Um, Jackson says, Pastor, on to you, what's the ideal size of a church that I should look for. Uh, Jackson, I don't know. Uh, um, you know, I, I think you look for a church where the Bible's being taught, where you're being fed, where you're growing in your faith, your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's called you to do. Uh, a church that will give you the opportunity to use the gifts that God has given you. Now, that doesn't mean you start out at the top of something. It just means that you go into that church and you serve and you use the gifts God has given you. And if you're faithful in little things, he will uh, give you bigger things to be faithful in. Um, I would personally look for a church uh, that is diverse in terms of age, um, ethnic makeup. Um, by age, I mean young and old, a good mix of people a church where people are getting saved, uh, a church that is loving and accepting, and I think there are so many of them around Jackson. So that's what I would do. And if I found that church in a 3,000-person church or a 300-person church, I would I would say that's the church for me. And I think the Lord will give you confirmation on that. Let me share a different perspective, Jackson. As a pastor... You know, uh, again, for 26 and a half years, I've been trying to figure out what the ideal size of a church is. You know, when we start, we've all got egos. We want to we want to have big churches. Um, and, and I think there's a place for big churches. Uh, but one of the things that I learned, and we've got a lot of people come to our church. So uh, we're not a small church by any means. Uh, we're a small location. But but we, we've got a lot of people who come. And... Um, I realized that our church was getting too big. 
when I couldn't know people personally or be invested in people personally. Um, when when uh, somebody would come and introduce themselves to me and I'd say, oh, are, are you new? Oh, no, we've been coming for five years. That, to me, is a church that's too big. Uh, you know, for a pastor, um, uh, the people are the point of what we do, and you want to be involved in the people's lives. Now, we don't stop people from coming. We've planted a whole bunch of churches, and God has kept us in this small place so that we can't get, like, super big. But um, um, I, I personally uh, prefer to know the people. Um, I want the people to know me. Um, Paula, you know this, you've been listening to our show for a long time, Jackson. Uh, Paula wants to know everybody, and God has really gifted her to be able to do that. But I think the the, the import is, uh, I just would really rather be invested in people. I like when new people come, but I want to get to know them too. And I try to spend some time, uh, my people know that uh, whether it's Paul or any of the other people on staff, they know that if new people come in, especially people that listen on the radio, either to this program or to our teaching programs, um, uh, I, I, if they're here, I want them to say, well, let me introduce you to Pastor Ron. And uh, I, I like to look him in the eye and thank him for coming. And uh, so I, I guess my perspective, Jackson, and yours are coming from different directions. But uh, I, I just think you need to be invested in the body. If if there are too many people who are strangers, I think that's not the ideal size. And that probably made sense to nobody in the audience but me, but it made sense to me, so thank you, Jackson. Oscar wants to know, Pastor Ron, what do you think is missing in modern church? Um, I'm going to be really general here, Oscar, because I'm not sure exactly what you're asking uh, from my perspective, I think the thing that is missing the most is um, solid verse-by-verse, verse, chapter-by-chapter Bible teaching. Um, I think because of that, a desire to pursue personal holiness is lacking. Um, and I think in large part, commitment is lacking. I think like all things America, we, we've become spectators rather than participants. And, uh, you know, I, I tease with our church here, Oscar, I tell them, look, come on, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I think we need to be ready to serve when we come to church. I think we need to focus on others rather than focusing on ourselves. I think we have turned modern church in the United States into, well, I'm shopping for a church that meets my needs instead of I'm looking for a church where I can meet the needs of others. And as idealistic as that sounds, Oscar, uh, that, that's so significant because we're not here for ourselves. The mature Christian man or woman knows that Jesus is going to take care of them. Jesus is going to provide what they need. Uh, our job is to be Jesus to other people and be on the lookout for opportunities to minister to other people. And as we're faithful to do that, the Spirit of God flows and that power comes out. I, I think um, commitment and often sincerity, um, I just think there's a lot missing in modern churches. Having said that, I love the Church of Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful churches around. And Oscar, a lot of those wonderful churches are churches on street corners somewhere that you wouldn't think much of. But sometimes you'll find that love and you'll find that sense of community in these smaller churches, neighborhood churches. And I think it's a great, great um, opportunity to go in and be used. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to be used. Thank you for the question, Oscar. Three three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Vanessa or Vanessa. We have a Vanessa on my staff, and so that's why I said Vanessa, sort of out of memory. Here's Vanessa. Is there a biblical balance for Christians when it comes to politics? Um, good question, Vanessa. Uh, the answer is, yeah, there is balance in all things. 
is where you're always going to find Jesus. He's never at the extremes. So here's, I think, what the biblical balance is for a Christian. Uh, I think we vote. I think we participate. I think at times we can even advocate. Um, uh, I, I personally believe that, that Christians ought to run for political office. Uh, they ought to do so knowing that, um, that, that, that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the kingdoms of this world. But, but I think there's an import uh, in, in, in Christians being involved in um, the political races. I, I'm grateful, for instance, in Texas, that we have a Republican governor um, who is not going to give in to fear, and he's going to keep our state. That's why so many people are moving to Texas. Whether you like our governor or not, that's not the issue. But, but I'm grateful that we've had the freedom um, in Texas, we we go other places. I travel to other places, and and there are states where where people are still locked in in their houses, not not legally, but but figuratively, um, where, where restaurants aren't open and, and available to people, and just the, the normal way of life. Um, that's not that's not the, the case here in Texas. So yeah, I I think I, I'd love to see Christians run for political offices should they feel called by God to do it. But there's a, a, a place, I think like our first question from Henry, um, like, like in business, we, we need Christians running for offices who won't compromise. I think that's really, really critical. If, if they won't comprom- compromise, if they'll stand with and for Jesus, uh, then they ought to run. If they're not going to stand for Jesus, then they just become sort of a, a, a victim. They get chewed up and spit out by the system. Um, but but relative to our own personal political views, I think the more you know Jesus, the more informed you are about his character and his nature, the better able we are to traverse uh, the, the hot topics that come up in the world that we live in. Um, I don't know how any Christian, a born-again Christian, could ever vote for somebody who is uh, pro-murder, m- murdering children, babies, abortion. Um, um, th- there's no balance there. You just can't do it. You, you can't be part of supporting um, a party that is going to murder children. Um, on the other hand, um, we have to take more compassionate views when it comes to people. Um, you know, we have a border crisis, Vanessa, and uh, you turn on the news media and it's all one side or the other and there's no balance. Here's the balance. We can't affect our national policies on our borders. But what we can do is we can treat anybody and everybody that God brings along our way with kindness and compassion you know, we pray for opportunities to share Jesus with people all the time. I don't ask them whether they're a citizen. I don't ask them how they got into this country. Um, and, and too many of us as Christians, we've sort of gotten so militant about our view that we forget about the people and the situation that they're running from. So we need to be those men and women who find that kind of balance. I think we need to be sure that our ecclesiology is balanced as well. What's the job of the church? The job of the church is not to promote politics. The job of the church is not to advocate. The the job of the church is to equip people for the work of ministry. And and I think if you keep that balance, Vanessa, I think uh, at that point then everything is going to going to make sense to you. But we need to find the middle ground. Far too many Christians, far too many Christians are more invested in the kingdom of this world, the United States political system, than they are focused on the kingdom of Jesus. I made a comment on this program a long time ago. I also made it to my church. There are Christians who are more excited about the return of Donald Trump than about the return of Jesus. And I just don't understand that. That's simply being out of balance. 
So find the biblical balance. Just let Jesus form who you are and the way you think. And when you understand who he is and what he would have you do, then vote your conscience. And that's our role in politics. So I hope that makes sense to you, Vanessa. That's the biblical balance. But churches that are invested in politics, I believe, are doing a a great disservice to their people. I think what they're doing is leaving their people ill-prepared to live in a world um, that's going to get worse and worse and worse. So, Vanessa, I hope that makes sense to you. We are coming to the end of our first half hour of the program. Let me remind you that uh, Paula will be live with me tomorrow in the date day edition of the program. Um, I may have layer and layer and layer and layers upon layers on, but we will be here, Lord willing, and we'd love to have you. Uh, tonight here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, I'm going to be teaching out of 1 Kings chapter 2, the last half of the chapter. And uh, you can watch that at calvaryessay.com. Well, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. We would love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, I struggle with anger a lot. Is it an evil spirit causing it? Uh, No, it's your flesh. It is your flesh. That's all. Now, Satan is going to try to provoke your flesh, and he's an expert at it. But this is all you. Now, here's what I want you to understand. As a believer, we have already been delivered from the things that cause our flesh to, to, to rage out of control. Uh, if you struggle with anger, you're not in the Spirit of God. You're, you're, you have the Spirit of God if you're a believer, but you're quenching the Spirit by giving in to your flesh. This is why Paul said that we're to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. When you feel yourself getting angry, you've got to get to that place where you understand it's simply not okay if I give in to this. Now, we develop habits, and you've, give, you've developed a habit of giving in to your anger. But it's a sin. It's not a weakness. It's not a demon spirit. It's a sin, and it's your responsibility. It's your fault. So you've got to die to your flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, if you, right, I say on this program all the time, just be with Jesus. If you're with Jesus, you won't lose your temper. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking with Jesus, you're going to be able to control yourself. So whoever told you that it's an evil spirit, that's that's a lie from the enemy, um, rationalizing sin. It is sin. You need to repent. You need to hate it. And when you find yourself getting angry, you need to change it, fix it, before that anger spills out on anyone else. Now, I realize that people are very, very angry in the world that we live in. But you you admittedly know this is a struggle that you've got to deal with. So it's something that you can't put off. And you've got to get to that place, as I said, where you simply understand it's not okay to do this again ever. It's not okay to do it ever. And we have the power. Sin no longer is our master. Sin no longer has dominion over us. If the Spirit of God lives in you, that's the, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead, then you have been given the power to overcome your anger. Memorize 1 Corinthians 10.13. It's not that long, and it's a promise from God. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. Anonymous, what that means is that you're no different than all the other people who struggle with anger. 
And then the rest of that verse says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. In other words, Anonymous, you can prevail over the temptation to sin. You can actually say no. And that's what we've got to learn. Now, you don't tell me who you're angry at. But I've had this conversation on this program before. Um, uh, People, husbands and wives that argue a lot. How would you ever explain to Jesus that you're angry with somebody that he loves, somebody that he died for? How would you ever explain raising your voice to your husband or to your wife or to your children? How would you explain that to him? Jesus, I know they're a blessing from you, but I just couldn't help myself. See, we won't be able to say that when we stand before the Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we're going to know that it's on us. It's not on anybody else. So this is not an evil spirit. This is your flesh. And your flesh has to go. Let me suggest to you, Romans 7, um, start in about verse 22. uh, And and listen to how Paul dealt with his temptations. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. What was his answer? O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me, rescue me from this body of death? Anonymous, you need to be rescued from your anger. And Jesus has already done it. And if you'll run to him when you feel yourself getting angry, I promise you, you can have victory over this. And we repeat one last time, it's simply not okay for you ever to get angry again. When you get angry, take it to Jesus. I hope that makes sense to you. Anthony says, Pastor Ron, when do we receive our glorified bodies? When we die or at the rapture? Uh, Anthony, there's disagreement over this. Um, I think the majority opinion, uh, which is not my opinion, by the way, I think the majority opinion is that we get our glorified bodies at the rapture of the church. If that were true, that would mean that when we die, only our spirit goes to be in the presence of Jesus. And later at the rapture of the church, then then we who are being raptured will receive our glorified physical bodies. At the same time, those who are already in heaven will receive their glorified physical bodies. Um, I think that's what most people believe based on some of the wording um, in, in our New Testament. However, we serve a God who lives outside of time and space. Everything is always the present. And Anthony, I think we receive our glorified, physical, resurrected body um, the moment we go into the presence of Jesus. I think that's, at least from my perspective, pretty clear. But in fairness, that is probably a minority opinion. uh, So you can sort of take it when you want. Here's what I know for sure. Uh, We take our last breath on this earth. We're going to go be in the presence of the Lord whether it's just our spirit or we're going to have our glorified, resurrected bodies, our physical bodies, uh, we will be with Jesus. And I know that when we receive our glorified, resurrected bodies, they will be like his glorified, resurrected bodies, and I can't wait. But, again, personally, I believe that we get them the minute we go into the presence of the Lord. And for those of us who are waiting for Jesus to come for his church, I think... um, when we're raptured, we'll be thrilled in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. We will be changed. And these bodies that are fit for earth uh, and not fit for heaven, um, they will be changed. We will all be changed in an instant. So I hope that makes sense to you. Here's a question from Nicholas. He says, what's the second experience of the Holy Spirit referring to? Nicholas, when you hear people talk about a second experience, usually it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Spirit of God. Now, let me be a little more specific here. Um, When we get saved, upon conversion, a genuine conversion, we receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful picture when Jesus 
post-resurrection, he appeared to his disciples. And he, it says he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. Um, that happens to us, effectively, the minute we are born again. We receive the Spirit of God, and we have that deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. We have the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form in Christ, and, and another Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit living in us. So we have all we need. We're saved as saved as we can ever be. But there is a subsequent experience, um, and it's triggered by obedience. Uh, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Uh, it's Acts 5.32. The context there is in power. And so whenever we step out by faith to do what God has asked us to do, when we're being obedient, he always gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to accompany that calling. Um, we always have what we need to do what he's asked us to do. Now, sometimes there is an experience uh, that I referred to earlier as a baptism of the Spirit or being filled by the Spirit that happens. It's sort of like God giving us a, a preview of coming attractions and the Spirit comes upon us. Um, um, the, the problem with that from my perspective, Nicholas, is that um, we sort of get to the point, I think, where if we have that experience, okay, that's enough, I got it. And it's not enough. We need to be filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit every single day. In fact, I'll go farther than that. All day, every day, we need to be with Jesus. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. That's what's being empowered to do the work that God's called us to do is really all about. So um, uh, I think when you hear the term, most of the time it's referring to an experience where gifts are given. Um, um, at times, those are very emotional experiences. Um, I've had several of those experiences over the years where um, I just felt like tidal waves of love were washing over me. Uh, there are times when I've been filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus wanted me to feel this pain. Um, that's that's a difficult one. But I, I've been uh, in places where God's heart was so broken and he wanted me to experience that heartbreak. He wanted me to share that with him. And so I had an experience with the Holy Spirit. But I think most of the time, and I, I want to demystify this, this baptism experience, Nicholas, uh, because most of the time it's just very natural. Um, you purpose in your heart to obey God, you're going to get that power of the Holy Spirit resting upon you and then flowing through you day after day. So it's not a, you got to speak in tongues thing. Sometimes that happens. It's not that you got to prophesy things. Sometimes that would happen, the gift of prophecy, not that you would be a prophet. Um, sometimes it's just an experience of just the closeness, the intimacy with Christ. It's something that we should really chase every day. Jesus wants us to have that power. He wants to give us the Spirit. So rather than calling it a second experience, uh, we need to call it an everyday subsequent experience with the Holy Spirit of God. It's just us giving him the permission to do whatever he wants with us and then through us for other people. So, Nicholas, thank you for the question. Here is a question from Jerry. Jerry said, I was told that the reason that we're losing young people when they go to college is that we no longer catechize them when they're young. Do you agree? Uh, interesting perspective, Jerry. Uh, I think catechism is a good thing. Now, I'm not talking about catechism classes, but catechism is just instructing them in the Lord. Uh, we call that here at Calvary Chapel verse-by-verse -verse Bible teaching. We start uh, using your term catechizing our kids uh, in, in the nursery. Uh, we're praying for them and reading them scripture uh, when they're in the nursery, when they get in the toddler room. We're telling them Bible stories with our Bibles open. Um, when the kids grow older, they're, they're, we don't have programs or, or, or um, uh, different ways of entertaining the kids. We open the Bible and teach them verse by verse. And um, 
they know who Jesus is. And, and uh, Jerry, we have a lot of young kids who really are saved and they really know it and they understand who Jesus is. They understand who they are. And we watch them grow and it's a wonderful thing. Now, truth is, we lose people when they go to college too because not all those kids are saved. So let me make something really clear, Jerry. The real reason that we lose young people when they go to college is because those people are never saved. They may have been raised in a Christian home. They may have been made to come to church. But they never surrendered their heart to Jesus Christ. They go to college. They find out there's a whole big world out there that tells them it's okay to sin. And then just like everybody else, they have flesh and that flesh has an insatiable appetite. And then they have to choose. We've had kids that fell away when they went to college and then they came back and found themselves walking with Jesus again. We all have to make the choices. Parents can't make our choices. Mom and dad's faith doesn't work. That time when we send them away to school, we send them away to the service, or we send them away to, to, to a job, uh, that's when they've got to make their own choices to serve Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I haven't lost any that the Father has given me. And he certainly isn't losing them today. Um, I just think that we automatically assume that they were raised in church, so they're Christian kids. And and uh, I think that's nonsense. We don't lose them. Jesus never had them. And now they've got to decide what are they going to do with what they learned. And Jesus is always going to be there knocking at the door of their heart. By the way, Jerry, I think it's a good thing that these kids have to be weaned off their mom and dad's Jesus. Uh, We all have a rebellious streak. I call it uh, putting our own tree of choice um, in the crossroads of their life. And when they leave home, they've got to make a decision. And of course, the University of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what most of our schools are, they're going to do everything they can to steal the faith. We have so many kids who will stand with and for Jesus in their classroom discussions. And they will be belittled, made fun of by their professors. Interesting. Nobody ever worries about that kind of abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, And they'll go toe-to-toe with them. And they'll stand firm because they've been taught. So uh, I, I think, uh, to use your term, catechizing them uh, is, um, needs to be done. They need to know who they believe, why they believe, and they need to know what they believe. And I just don't think many of our churches are preparing young people for that. So, Jerry, thank you for the question. This one is from Rose. Um How important is it to rest physically, and how can I reconcile resting with the urgency of the last days? Rose, I love your question. Um, Rest is important. It's very important physically. Exercise is important physically. we got to be physically fit enough to serve the Lord until he comes. Uh, I I had a guy stop. I, I... when the weather's warmer, I run through the streets and somebody said, why are you exercising so hard? And I always answer the same way. Can't serve Jesus if I'm dead. And that often leads to really neat conversations. Um, but it's also important to rest. You know, I'm getting old and uh, I need to rest enough physically and mentally to be able to do what I do. I'm still very, very busy, very active. I teach three Bible studies a week. I do this program. I have other things that we do with like pastors, discipleship classes and things. Um, and I can't do that if I'm always on the go. I, I'm, I've never been a guy that can burn the candle at both ends. So I need to rest physically. And then what I do and what, what you can do, Rose, is uh, just commit your life to using your gifts for the glory of God, and he will give you the power to do it, but he'll also make sure that you get enough rest physically. I just think it's it's bad stewardship to, to constantly be on the go. And well, the urgency, Paul says, that the time is short. We're to redeem the time, making the most of every opportunity. 
But you can't make the most of every opportunity if you're so physically exhausted you can't do it. So I think rest is important. Uh, the Bible seems to justify that response. Uh, rest was so important that God rested not because he needed to rest. He rested because he was done. And he asked us to take at least a day of rest for that. Um, so I, I just I think we all have different bodies, different needs. Um, I think we need to, to make sure we get enough rest to be able to serve the Lord. When I try to do Rose, my picture is always this. Uh, God gives a fresh batch of grace every day. Not grace to say, but grace to live. And um, when I go to bed, I want to use it all. I want it to be gone, and then I can wake up knowing the next morning that there will be a brand new batch of grace waiting for me for the day that lies ahead of me. So I just you just have to be sure that you do what your body needs. I know people who have a really hard time sleeping. We've got some ladies in particular in our church who just don't sleep, um, and God sustains them. Um, we've, we've got a lot of young people that come and get excited about the Lord. We've got to kind of slow them down sometimes and tell them, you know, you've got to get rest. Uh, we've got families that need our time and attention. So uh, we just have to do whatever it is that God set before us. And, and we know our bodies and our needs. So I hope that answers your question. Nate says, uh, what exactly is the mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2? Um, Nate, Paul Paul actually had three different mysteries that were revealed to him that hadn't been revealed to anybody else. The mystery of the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, um, the, 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 the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, uh, the Holy Spirit living in us. Uh, and, and in Ephesians chapter 2, it's the mystery of the church, something that in Paul's day was unthinkable that Jew and Gentile would be combined in one body. And that's what he's trying to, to, to tell them about in Ephesians chapter 2, that this was always God's plan. Before there were Jews, they were God's chosen people, and then there were Gentiles. And and what he's saying now is God's plan from the beginning was to combine the two. And boy, was that ever met with resistance. When it began, you can go to Acts chapter 10, Nate. Um, Peter, God put him into trance uh, on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. And he had a vision, um, a sheet covering the four corners of the earth. That's what the four corners signifies. And uh, it was filled with all kinds of unclean foods and uh, Peter was told in the vision, rise, kill and eat, Peter. And Peter, no, no, Lord, I've, I've never let anything unclean come across my lips. And Jesus basically was saying, I'm doing a whole new thing here, Peter. Rise, kill and eat. And that was a prelude to uh, him being called to the household of Cornelius and watching Gentiles be accepted into the kingdom of God. To understand how radical that was, you need to remember that Jews hated Gentiles. They believed that the only value a Gentile had in in eternity was to fuel the flames of, of hell. And now God takes Peter and says, um, here's my new plan. And Jew and Gentile would become one. So it's very, very important that we understand that mystery. And boy, did Paul get a lot of heat over that because the Jews, you remember, he and Peter had a face-to-face confrontation. In Acts chapter 15, he goes back to Jerusalem, the council at Jerusalem, and sort of sets out the boundaries between him and James and the other reputed pillars of the church uh, about what was going to be next. So that's the mystery talked about in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Last question of the day, another day with no phone calls. Daniel says, is it biblical to think that every Christian should speak in tongues? Um, Daniel, it's not. First uh, Corinthians 12 and First Corinthians 14, uh, we're told that not everyone is going to speak in tongues. That's First Corinthians 14. But the gift is given to those who will receive it. So the gift of tongues is a wonderful gift. 
But the reality, Daniel, is that there's some people who just won't be able to deal with it because it doesn't make sense to them. And because it doesn't make sense to them, they just don't think it has any value. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a mature way to think of the gift. Every gift that God gives is a wonderful gift. The gift of tongues is an edifying gift, a vertical gift between you and the Lord. It, it, it strengthens your relationship with the Lord. Uh, but not everybody has to speak in tongues, as some churches wrongly teach. Um, having said that, I do think that everybody can speak in tongues. God would give the gift to everybody. It's a wonderful gift. I just think there are people that don't have the faith to receive it. And by that, I mean, it's just hard for them to step outside of their own comfort zones. It doesn't make sense to them. The enemy is always going to attack. Oh, that's not that's not really the Holy Spirit. You're just making it up kind of thing. Uh, so... Um, I would like, I'm, I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Uh, Daniel, I, I think it's great for every Christian to speak in tongues, uh, but recognizing that not all are going to receive the gift of tongues because it just doesn't make sense. So Daniel, I hope that makes sense to you. Hey, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with us on the date day edition of the program. Please everybody be careful. The streets might be a little slick in the morning and it is for sure going to be really, really cold. So be really, really careful out there. And Lord willing, Paul and I will be here uh, live at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word, may God bless you richly. Have a wonderful evening in the Lord. And again, Lord willing, we'll see you here tomorrow on AM 630. The Word. God bless you. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.